Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you all for joining us. My name is Akash Pound, and I'm very pleased to be chairing today's discussion here at the Institute for Government. The title of our event is What Next for Scotland? The Independence Question and the Future of the UK. And we are having this discussion towards the end of a year in which support for independence among Scottish voters appears to have established a clear um, but small lead in the opinion polls. Um, for those watching on video, um, hopefully you will shortly be able to see a chart, uh, which you can also find on our website, um, which illustrates this point. And, and what it, I think, quite clearly shows is that there has been an upward trend in support for independence, um, more or less since 2017, but particularly um, during the course of the past year. And uh, most recent polls by several different uh, opinion poll companies have reported that between 51% and 58% of Scottish voters um, now agree with the proposition that Scotland should be an independent country. Um, those figures are, are, are taking out don't knows, but um, of those who um, answer the question, there seems to therefore be um, now a, a lead for the yes side. However, the UK government has um, made clear that it will not pass the necessary enabling legislation, the so-called Section 30 order, um, to empower the Scottish Parliament to hold another referendum. That was the mechanism used um, to ensure that the 2014 referendum um, could be held on what was described as a fair, legal and decisive basis. And so if the UK government stands its ground, if it holds it hold firm on um, this issue, is that the end of the story? Or does the Scottish government have credible alternative paths um, to a second referendum? Or alternatively, might we see the UK government eventually um, be forced to change its position? For instance, if, as the polls suggest is potentially going to happen, the SNP were to win a majority of seats at next May's Scottish parliamentary election. And if IndyRef2 does ever happen, um, on what conditions might it take place? Who would be entitled to vote this time, for example? What would be the question on the ballot paper? What also would be the big issues that advocates for independence um, would have to clarify before Scots vote again? For, for instance, about um, the fiscal situation that an independent Scotland um, would inherit. So just to discuss these and other questions, I'm delighted to welcome our panel. Um, first of all, we're very pleased to, um, to, to have with us today Sir John Curtis, polling expert, professor of politics at Strathclyde University and a senior fellow at the National Centre for Social Research. Um, John, thanks for being with us. Um, second, uh, welcome to Shona Douglas Scott, who is professor of law at Queen Mary University, London. Although she's joining us uh, from the USA, uh, where she's currently on a research sabbatical as a fellow of Princeton University. Um, so Shona, thank you for joining us too. Um, third, very pleased to be joined by my colleague Jess Sargent, who's a senior researcher here at the IFG and a co-author of a report we published last December on what the path to any second IndyRef might look like. And last but not least, um, thank you to Andrew Wilson uh, for joining us. Andrew uh, represented the Scottish National Party as a member of the Scottish Parliament for Central Scotland um, in the very first term of devolution. And uh, more recently, he's chaired the Sustainable Growth Commission um, that has considered um, economic and, and fiscal aspects of independence and which reports to First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. So many thanks to the four of you for joining us. Um, before I turn to the panel, let me just say quickly that if anyone watching this live wishes to suggest um, a question for the panel, please add that using the Q&A function um, on, on Teams, which um, hopefully you will all have um, access to. And I'll do my best to um, bring in 
questions from the audience as much as possible. So without further ado, I'd like to turn first of all to Professor Curtis. John, um, you studied Scottish public opinion for many years. And when you look at the recent polling data, such as uh, the chart I, I just showed, what do you what do you see there? Do you perceive that there has been a decisive shift now in favour of independence? And if so, what is driving that? Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by decisive in part. Um, it's decisive in the sense that the increase in support, um, which has basically occurred during the course of the last two years, um, has taken us from position where it was still the case that there was a majority in favour of the union to a position where there was a majority in favour of independence. So it's decisive in that sense. Is it decisive in the sense that uh, is it inevitable now that Scotland is going to become an independent country in some reasonably foreseeable uh, time frame? Well, the answer to that is certainly no. Uh, basically, no opinion, no change of attitude, which is as recent as the one that we're talking about. And, we, and where, you know, given the fragility of polls, still is a relatively narrow one. Um, and where, in truth, we've not really been debating the issues about independence during the course of the last two years. So the change, in some senses, occurred in a vacuum. And when uh, the debate is engaged, as it would be before a referendum campaign, who knows in which direction, public, if any, public opinion might shift. Um, so in that sense, no, it's, it's not decisive, but it's clearly the change in attitude uh, as registered by the polls has clearly changed the political weather. There doesn't seem to be any dispute about the fact that opinion has shifted. Uh, no, none of those in the unionist camp, including the UK government, seem to be suggesting that the polls are wrong. Um, and that's the reason part why you're having this seminar and why we're now all wondering what might happen on the other side of next May's devolved election. As to what, as to why this increase has happened, well, it's essentially, it's a two-part story. Um, part one is essentially Brexit. Um, one of the ironies of the 2014 independence referendum um, is that we spent hours arguing about whether or not an independent Scotland would or would not be able to be a continuing member of the European Union. Um, and those on the union side of the argument said it wouldn't, and those on the yes side of the argument said they would. Well, the truth is that both sides were wasting their time, because in the 2014 independence referendum, in the end, there was no relationship at all between people's attitudes towards the European Union and whether they voted yes or no. And indeed, if you look at what happened in the 2016 EU referendum, basically those who voted yes were almost as likely to have voted to leave as were those who had voted no. In other words, it was an issue that cut across uh, the independence divide. Um, however, and for quite a while, it therefore appeared that basically it wasn't going to make any difference mm. because yes, yeah, sure, there were some people who had voted no and remain who'd switched to yes, but they were being counterbalanced by a group of people who had voted yes and leave. Net effect that we still essentially have polls that were saying it was about 45% support. But of course, what was going on there was a fairly significant restructuring of the character of support for independence. And whereas hitherto it had been uh, an argument that was largely independent of the debate about uh, Scotland's relationship with the European Union, it was now intertwined with it. And uh, basically, if you're a Remain voter, you were significantly more likely to, vote, to be in favour of yes than if you were a leave vote. And also, by the way, the character of support for the SNP also changed in the wake of this. The SNP's difficulty in the 2017 general election had very little to do with its call for India Ref 2 and everything to do with the fact that it was losing a significant chunk of leave voters who had supported it uh, back in the 2015 election. However, when we got to last year, what began to become clear in the polls is that this uh, restructuring was no longer simply a restructuring that left the aggregate numbers unchanged, but rather was taking us to a situation where support was growing for independence. And the reason essentially why we know it's Brexit what was doing it is that all of the increase in support for independence registered in the polls last year, which got us basically to about 49 by the beginning of this year, 50% support for independence occurred amongst those who voted Remain. And one of the things that 
everybody needs to understand, you know, you have to leave aside how you would like the world to be about the union. You have to leave aside what you would like people to uh, think about the merits or otherwise of Brexit. The thing you have to understand, or wh whichever side of the argument you are, is that the pursuit of Brexit has undermined the aggregate level of support for the union in Scotland as well as reshaping its character. And that's a political fact you have to understand and then deal with. The second part of the story, however, is this year, um, and that's seemingly not to do with Brexit, but to do with coronavirus. The uh, reason, two pieces of evidence to take you in that direction. One is that the increase in support this year, as opposed to last year, has occurred just as much amongst Leave voters as it has amongst Remain voters. So therefore it isn't Brexit what was doing it. Second thing that, that is the case, I mean, yeah, we have to remember that coronavirus is by far, far and away, the most important public policy challenge facing the devolved institutions since 1999. All the stuff we used to get excited about, about free personal care and free university tuition fees are frankly small beer as compared with uh, coronavirus, which of course, because of the nature of the devolution settlement has meant that the public health measures in Scotland and what rules we do or don't operate under have been decided in Edinburgh and not in London. Um, and for reasons we can happily discuss you on, but I won't go into now, Basically, the view of the Scottish public is that the Scottish government and Nicola Sturgeon have handled the pandemic well, and they think the UK government and Boris Johnson have handled it badly. And therefore, what seems to be true is that amongst a minority, but a significant minority of those who voted no in 2014, they seem to have come to the conclusion, and certainly this is what some of the polls pick up, is that maybe actually Scotland would have dealt with the pandemic more effectively as an independent country. And that seems to be the perception that's gone from about 50% support for independence to the 54, 55% that we have now. And we have to remember one of the long, I mean, I mean basically what's happened just fits two long-standing nationalist narratives. Narrative number one has long been for so long as Scotland remains part of the United Kingdom, it is at wish, at risk of having its democratic wishes, quote unquote, overturned by the less progressive views of those in England. Brexit, for those on the nationalist side of the argument, is a perfect illustration of that argument. The second crucial nationalist narrative is that as an independent country, Scotland would be governed more effectively. And for the time being, at least, it looks as though coronavirus has now provided a perfect illustration <coughs> from the nationalist perspective of that argument too. And this is essentially, it seems to be, the reason why the union is now seemingly in serious trouble so far as uh, still having majority support north of the border. Thank you. That's an incredibly um, helpful um, overview of, of, of the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, so clearly we can see that, as, as, as you've described, there has been um, a rise in, in support for independence for the reasons you've um, outlined. But a slightly different question I wanted to put to you is, is whether you think um, Scottish voters are actually enthusiastic about the idea of, of having another referendum um, in, 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 in the near future, separate from how they might vote if the referendum happens. Um, I mean, people will remember uh, the famous Brenda from Bristol, who, who famously responded, oh no, not another one, uh, when informed of the 2017 election. Well, Scotland's had two referendums, three UK general elections, it's coming up to another Scottish election within the space of six years or so. Um, what, what's your view on that? Do people actually want this to happen? Uh, the answer to Akash is that it's not a separate question. Basically, if you are in favour of independence, you uh, it depends. The, 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 the polls ask slightly different questions. But if we take what I take to be the crucial question, which is whether or not you think there should be a referendum if the SNP get an overall majority in next May's election, most yes voters will say there should be. Most no voters say that there shouldn't. And therefore, what you discover when polls ask that question is you either get a slight majority in favour of a referendum or a slight majority against. But certainly what is true is the position is now different from what it was when Nicola Sturgeon first suggested a, um, a referendum 
uh, off the back of Brexit, which is back in March 2017. And then Theresa May said no. At that time, it was clear from the polls that there wasn't majority support for a referendum. I think probably in part because quite a few yes voters at that point in time went, well, I'm not quite sure that's such a good idea because I'm not sure we're going to win. Certainly in the current environment, uh, certainly it's no longer possible for those on the union side of the argument to assert that most people in Scotland don't want a referendum and to assume that that assertion could not be challenged by polling evidence. I can find you polling evidence that in some instances now find, particularly if the SNP get an overall majority, a small majority in favour of having another referendum in exactly the same way as there's a small majority in favour of independence. But, you know, you and I are both political scientists and we get caught up in issues of process. And of course, it's a fascinating issue of process. But for most people, it's not a procedural issue. It's a substantive issue. If you're in for of independence, you want a referendum. If you're against independence, you don't want a referendum. Mm. Yeah. OK, well, we will come on to uh, the, the, the 2021 election um, in a few moments. One final thing, uh, a question that's come in from um, the audience that I think I'll just put to you as 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 we have it there. Um, since you, you mentioned, I suppose, what we might call the the Boris factor and the fact that at least in 2020 um, perceived poor performance by the UK government in dealing with um, coronavirus has has encouraged a number of people to switch their support to independence. So the question as as put from uh, Mike uh, in the audience is, do the no side have any chance of of winning if a referendum were to take place while Boris Johnson remains as Prime Minister. I mean, I'm sure you're not going to want to be categorical about that, but I suppose the question for you is how important is, is the personality of the PM in, in persuading people which way they might vote? Well, the answer to that, of course, is not just the personality. Um, it follows from my explanation as to why we are where we are, that Boris Johnson is the crucial dramatist persona. Boris Johnson is the person who uh, is most strongly associated with the successful Leave campaign, apart from Nigel Farage. Boris Johnson is the person who delivered Brexit. And Boris Johnson is the person who has presided over dealing with the coronavirus pandemic in a manner that has got the thumbs down north of the border. So the truth is that Boris Johnson has played an absolutely central role so far in stimulating support for independence in Scotland and I invite unions to draw their own conclusion, therefore, as to how helpful his continued presence of UK Prime Minister would be uh, if indeed we were to have another referendum. Mm -hmm. OK, great. Thanks. Um, OK, uh, Shona, I'd like to, uh, to, to to come to you now to discuss um, the, the legal position. So under the, the devolution legislation, the Scotland Act of 1998, it is specified that the Scottish Parliament cannot pass any legislation that relates to reserve matters, so matters that are the responsibility of Westminster, which include um, the Union of the Kingdoms of Scotland and England. That's a quote from the legislation. Um, in your view, does this give the UK government or parliament a watertight veto effectively over any second referendum? Well, I would say it's not watertight. To say to a referendum is one which is consent between both governments, the Scottish and the UK government, um, as it was back in 2014, where there was the Edinburgh Agreement of 2012, um, under which the competence to legislate for uh, independence referendum was transferred to the Scottish government. Um, now, that doesn't mean that's the only legal route, but it's one that is pretty clear. Um, the Scottish government paper, Scotland's Right to Choose, published in December 2019, said that the Scottish government was committed, and I quote, to an agreed legal process which will be accepted as legitimate in Scotland, the UK as a whole, and by the international community. And I think that's really, really important. Why is it important that you have something which is accepted as legal um, and that the international community accepts? Well, firstly, because you want the rules for polling, the legislation that underpins a referendum, 
um, to be accepted. Um, I'm in the US right now and I've just seen the amount of havoc that can be created <laughs> when you have um, political parties, even a sitting president who refuses to accept um, votes of the people as legitimate. Secondly, the second important reason why um, any Scottish decision on independence must be seen as legal is with an eye to the international community and to the EU if there were to be any future EU membership or EEA membership for Scotland. Um, anything that doesn't look to be legal, agreed or just something that is cast on legal is going to face difficulties. And there have been many unilateral declarations of independence, such as that of Kosovo. And these are not illegal under international law, um, but many, many countries have refused to recognize states which have given unilateral declarations. So the preferred route would be one which is consensual, where both the UK government and the Scottish government um, agree, as last time round, um, that the Scottish government should have the power to legislate for an independence referendum and to set up various things such as the polling conditions and other things that were set up under the 2012 Edinburgh Agreement. But that doesn't mean that that is the only possible legal avenue. And that was not conceded by the Scottish government back in 2012. They did not say this is the only possible legal route. There may be others, but we are uncertain as to what they are right now. But there is a crowdfunding legal challenge ongoing. Um, but I would say that the legal route um, is important and it's separate from what the democratic case may be, which might rest on self-determination, importance of that. That is different. There may be a very, very strong case for the self-determination of Scotland, one that's been acknowledged by successive UK prime ministers, but that's not necessarily a legal case. Mm. And I suppose, um, yeah, just to follow up on that, is given the UK constitutional principle of, of parliamentary sovereignty, as well as the what is in the in the Scotland Act, does legal route necessarily imply agreement with Westminster? I suppose that's what it comes down to. Okay. Well, there is the issue of what are reserved and what are devolved matters. And this comes down to what you mentioned earlier, um, Schedule 5 of the Scotland Act um, and what is reserved under that. Is the union a reserved matter? Um, some constitutional experts have said, well, we could even perhaps have a consultative referendum and there wouldn't be so much doubt about that legally. We could go ahead with that, a consultative referendum um, whereby people would be voting on whether the Scottish government should um, engage in negotiations with the UK government exactly. over the possibility of independence. That would run into less obvious legal hurdles. Um, than a straightforward attempt to run um, a legal referendum that were not merely consultative. But there are problems, there are practical problems with that. And we've seen the situation in Catalonia where a referendum, even a consultative referendum, was not accepted and a lot of people didn't turn out to vote in it. So undoubtedly there are legal problems. I would separate those. I would not say they're insurmountable. And I would separate them from the political issues, which are going to be extremely important um, in the case of Scottish independence. They're not the same. Um, and the political case is just as important, I think, or it's pretty important. OK, thanks very much. Um, Andrew, very interested in your view on, on, on this same uh, issue. Um, what do you think the, the Scottish government should do what do you think it will do um if come next may snp majority perhaps has been returned but boris johnson's position remains um unchanged uh, what what what's plan b essentially <laughs> well the the point to start with is the reason we're here as john said is brexit you know the the case for having a referendum now is because we're leaving the european union against the expressed will of the scottish people that has moved the polls in the ways that john has described 
the core approach has to be, for all the reasons that Shona outlined, that the democratic will is expressed through a legal and legitimate referendum that is legitimate not only in the eyes of the people of Scotland, the UK, but crucially the European Union and its uh, member states who will um, allow or not allow Scotland to rejoin and exceed through the process that would then follow. So legitimacy um, is really, really important and orderly approach is really, really important. The Scottish Government are very well advised. Obviously, Scotland has had for some time its own legal system. And um, we have a Lord Advocate, we have other law officers who are independent of party advising the government. We have Scottish law lords represented in the House of Lords who have all been rather vocal, by no means supporters of the SNP or independence, but vocal on matters such as the Internal Market Bill and its legitimacy, and of course, all the way through Brexit. So the real question is not what's plan B for the Scottish Government. The real question is how could it be sustainable for the United Kingdom government to continue to act in a way which is non-constitutional, which is a, a, against the principles set out in 2012 and through 14, that is uh, against the express democratic will of the Scottish people, if indeed we get there. And John's right to say it's not necessarily certain that we will. So this will this will run. What's also true is that the more intransigent the UK government sounds and behaves, the more support for independence is likely to increase, the more that people are likely to do what John has identified, which is not to say that now is not the time, that actually, do you know what, the time is, as we emerge from the pandemic, the time is becoming um, more, more urgent. Because what's really interesting, I'd love to hear John's view, but what I see in the polls beyond the headlines is that for people of working age, we're into the 60s. If you, if you include the don't knows, people supporting the union are now in the 30s. That rather suggests momentum. For the first time, more women than men. For the first time, people born outside the UK, sorry, outside of Scotland, support independence. And for the first time in my lifetime, and I should say, well, OK, in the margin, John, but at least not a substantial against. And for the first time in my lifetime, people are more confident about the economic outlook with independence than they've ever been. So these are all, and polls are just polls. And John is right to say you can't take one and overstress it. He was he's very good at keep, keep, keeping people guided down the centre. But they all rather point to momentum. And, and really, we should be having a debate about what we then do with the consequences of that. What does the United Kingdom government do with the consequences? How do we remake the relationships? I think the Institute for Government should consider that as a future programme. You know, what, what does Ireland, Scotland, England and Wales and Northern Ireland all come together on post-independence? Um, but of course, well, there's water to travel under, under the bridge before then. Yeah, thanks. So I, and I hope to have time to come on to some of those um, questions in, in a few minutes. Um, before we get there, um, I want to uh, turn to Jess now. Um, so the, the issue's come up a few times already, Jess. Um, what might change um, next year? Um, I mean, what, what, what's, what's, what's your take um, as, a, as a close watcher of the UK government's attitude to devolution and the union? Do you, do you think the political calculus might shift if the SNP does uh, win a majority uh, next May, or perhaps if there, there's a SNP plus other supporters of independence majority? Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally we'll have to wait and see um, how the government responds. But I certainly think uh, pro-independence majority in the May elections would change the uh, political uh, calculus um, and certainly change um, the incentives there as well. As, as John made, John said, the UK government's current position, which is that um, the first referendum was a once in a generation opportunity and there's no appetite in Scotland for a further referendum. Um, I don't think it can continue to assert that if it wants to make the case that there shouldn't be a second independence referendum. I think it needs to think a bit more carefully um, about exactly um, how, how, on what terms and on what basis it will refuse to grant a section 30 order. But I also think the UK government needs to think about um, whether it's short term strategy for preventing a second independence referendum could actually be counterproductive in its long-term strategy of preventing independence. Um, so as, as John said, although most polls show that whether or not you think there should be a second independence referendum uh, will depend on whether you support it. Um, they are essentially different questions and there is a risk that if Westminster um, looks like it's just saying no, that it's just preventing um, 
potentially the will of the Scottish people, then that itself might possibly drive support for independence. I mean, again, uh, as all the panel have said, we shouldn't put uh, too much attention on any particular poll, um, but there was some research done um, by James Johnson, who's a former um, UK government advisor, um, that found amongst swing voters, um, the majority of them, I think it was 53%, um, felt that um, if there was an SNP majority or a, um, a nationalist majority in 2021, that the Scottish government that the UK government shouldn't continue to oppose a second independence referendum. Um, whether or not the UK government takes um, takes those factors into consideration, um, we'll have to see, um, because I think unlike David Cameron's position in 2011, uh, the polls look very different around uh, this time. And there is a real risk that if Westminster allows um, a Scottish independence referendum, that, that uh, this time the yes side could win it. Um, so I think we'll have to wait and see exactly what happens. But I think certainly the political pressure will, will ramp up for them to at least reconsider uh, their position. Mm, thanks. And um, perhaps you were being, I'm not sure, a bit diplomatic when you were talking about whether certain aspects of the government's short term strategy might be counterproductive to their long term objectives. Because there's a question coming from the audience that um, I, I, I think I'll put to you um, uh, since you've been following the UK internal market bill. So the question we've had from Vanessa Glynn, thank you for this, is does the internal market bill, um, as well as the comment by the Prime Minister that Scottish or that devolution has been a disaster, um, presage an all-out assault on devolution and follow-up, will what could be characterised as English nationalism um, end up as a key factor in, in breaking up the UK? I think that's um, a very interesting question and I think it's difficult to know how much uh, debates about kind of constitutional uh, or economic bills filter down to um, to the kind of level of, of the public. Um, but I, I still think that the UK internal market bill is significant in that and certainly that coupled with uh, the Prime Minister's comments on devolution uh, do give credence to this argument that the UK government does have centralising tendencies, that it is trying to uh, um, kind of limit the powers of, of the devolved administration. So, I mean, there is this ongoing argument about whether the bill is a power grab or whether it's a power surge. Um, I think it is fair to say that the UK internal market bill will place new limits on how the devolved administrations exercise those powers. Um, and fundamentally, I think in the UK government's uh, strategy towards the union going forward, there's two ways it could approach it. It could take a competitive approach that seeks to kind of compete with the devolved administrations, or it could take a more cooperative approach um, and think about how uh, the four nations could work together in the interests of the whole of the UK. Well, I think there are elements of the cooperative approach happening through programmes like Common Frameworks um, and the ongoing um, intergovernmental relations review, which we're hoping to see the results of soon. I think a lot of that has been undermined by this more competitive approach, which we've seen both in the UK internal market bill and the constraints that might place on devolved powers, uh, but also in how the UK government intends to use um, new spending powers that it's taking um, to replace EU structural funds. Today, we saw in, in the budget um, the, a long, a long going uh, dispute or question was was resolved there in that previously where money had come from the EU, the devolved administrations had quite a lot of say in exactly how that was spent. The UK government has now made clear that the scheme that will replace that, it will be the UK government that will determine how that money is spent um, as part to try and um, spend money in the devolved administrations with slapping a union jack on things. Um, and although short term, that might seem like a good idea, I think there is well, fundamentally devolution is, is popular. Um, in most parts of the UK. Um, and actually, there's a case to be made that a more uh, cooperative and collaborative approach um, could be a better way for the UK government to try and address its concerns about rising support for independence. Thanks. Um, Andrew, I want to I come, come to you um, on well, related points, actually. Um, so uh, you, you, you were watching the spending review announcement uh, earlier, of course. What, what, what do you make of um, the, the, the Shared Prosperity Fund announcement, for example, and the wider uh, approach that the UK government is, is taking to um, emphasising its, its commitment to all parts of the UK by additional spending, infrastructure investments and so on. Um, do you think that's likely to change many minds uh, in, in, in Scotland about the value of the union? 
Well, it's interesting. Um, the the commitment amounts to £40 per head on local infrastructure uh, in communities that will be visible, is the exact words of the um, spending review. It is all the hallmarks of a bunch of special advisors from in the thick of it, dreaming up something that would be a wizard wheeze and a jape that might move the Scots. It will have literally zero impact on public opinion. It will offend those who are guardians of devolution. Uh, people, uh, you know, one Conservative MP described the Internal Market Bill as the UK government is back in Scotland, and um, Lord Hope uh, described it as uh, something rather less positive than that. So, so the argument at that level has been lost amongst the civic society. The, pu the, the public aren't watching at this moment in time, I, I'm, I'm certain of that much. And this stuff doesn't work because it just demonstrates that the UK government are a million miles of what public opinion is on, on the ground. So none of these things help at all. I think they could actually harden opinion further. And um, whoever is advising um, the UK government in Scotland could do with uh, more support. Okay, so this, the sums involved, as you, as, as you say, are, are, are not um, particularly significant. However, um, I did want to ask you about the, um, as, as indicated at the start, the the overall fiscal position that Scotland is in and the, the challenge, therefore, that an independent um, Scotland would would one way or another have to um, have to deal with. Um, so just to just to give a, a couple of figures um, in 2018-19, um, this is based on, um, I think, the, the Scottish government's own analysis. There was a, a deficit, a, a net fiscal balance in Scotland of around um, 13 billion pounds or, or nearly two and a half thousand pounds per, per person in terms of a gap between total public spending in Scotland um, and tax revenue. Um, and tax revenue has fallen, of course, since 2014 because of the decline in the oil price. Um, in particular, um, but either way, um, what those figures suggest is that an independent Scotland would would face uh, some adjustment in <laughs> trying to to um, to balance the books. I just wonder, in your um, assessment, and that's something I know you've looked at on the Sustainable Growth Commission, um, what would be the way that an independent Scotland could um, yeah, could, as I say, balance those books? Well, it's a big question, Akash, isn't it? And I noticed Kenneth Armstrong was making a similar point about the economic arguments being the why does the broad shoulders of the UK argument not cut through? So let me try and take it because it's a really long and convoluted uh, issue, but let me try and summate it. So in a sense, if we think about the economic performance of the UK, it has fallen down the league table from first 100 or so years ago to 21st in the IMF rankings now. On the OECD outlook for this year, it will be the worst performing economy in Europe. So the broad shoulders are not performing. The fiscal implications of this, plus crucially, regional inequality, which is as bad in the United Kingdom as in any country in the developed world. Um, as a result of that, all of the regions and nations of the UK outside the southeast and east show substantial fiscal deficits. Scotland's not the worst, but it's substantial. And therefore, this is a reflection of the UK as it's currently run. So the argument that Scotland cannot move and transition to be independent because of its starting point is really a, you know, I wouldn't start from here argument. And it's been used for pretty much every territory the UK has lost uh, over the last 40 or 50, 50 years. The real argument must be, can you do better? Can you get the economy motoring to the extent that you can close the fiscal gap and, and sustain a better future? Can you become like target countries, maybe like uh, Denmark, Ireland's done its transformation. New Zealand had a worse deficit 20 or so years ago and is now in much better shape. And New Zealand is no richer than Scotland, quite interestingly. So, so, so that is one thing. The other big point, of course, is the UK's deficit is much worse this year than the one you quoted for Scotland last year. But the cost of servicing that deficit is now lower than it's been roughly half of where it was 10 years ago because the debt markets are funding government at historically cheap rates. What is the IMF of all people arguing just now? The people that argued for austerity in the global financial crisis era, they're arguing that governments need to invest through the crisis for the next, well, for the foreseeable five years and beyond. So that's the argument that's running just now. The deficit can be funded. It must be resolved. The best way to resolve it is through growing the economy better. But if you can't, the crucial test will be, will debt markets fund the Scottish government? The evidence is that they will. And um, also for context, the Scot Scottish tax revenues would pay for 
all of the budget of the Scottish Government, all of Social Security and all of pensions. So the deficit you describe is made in UK programmes, not, not sent over the border, they're made in UK programmes that you could choose to replicate or you could choose not to. Now, for example, the Scottish Government, I'm sure, would not cut international aid from 0.7 to 0.5, which, which the UK has just done, and um, they would look to replicate that. But this, so the picture is not as it seems, but it has to be resolved. And the need to resolve is the very reason to pursue a different economic policy with independence, not a reason to stay the same. In no other country on the planet would you say the government's finances are unsustainable, keep things the way are now. OK, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that the, uh, the, 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 the UK um, spending in Scotland um, on non-devolved matters. Yeah, the, the biggest part of that is, of course, on, on, on social protection, on welfare and pensions and so on. So um, the, the, there is spending, as you say, on international development and uh, defence and servicing past debt. Um, a share of which is assigned to Scotland in those calculations that I cited. So no doubt, um, you know, the, any negotiations over the terms of independence would um, would would um, might lead to different outcomes in terms of how uh, how those um, assets and liabilities are, are, are shared out. I mean, but yeah, for, for your audience, just because this has not come into the debate, but one of the recommendations we in the Growth Commission made to the Scottish Government is to go into negotiations offering the United Kingdom an annual solidarity payment from Scotland to the rest of the UK to make good the interest that is agreed and also to make good any on, ongoing joint projects such as international aid that we may continue together for some time. So the new, that's our pose. It's the opposite of what this government said to Europe when setting up Brexit is recognising our joint responsibilities. So people should be aware of that. But the negotiations are not one sided as people sometimes think. If you look at the assets and liabilities of the UK, the liabilities are four trillion and, and mounting. The assets are about two and a half billion. So the question in negotiation is not about dividing up assets, it's about dividing up liabilities. So, so the, the, the UK government really requires the Scotland to take on a share of those. So, so, so that does empower the Scottish side in any such discussion. But I do think it's worth having a look at what's actually being proposed because the realities of what's being proposed the orderly transition, being clear in a white paper about what that will look like, are a million miles away from the content of the debate that's often dominated uh, the London media. Yeah, OK, fair enough. And, and I know you've done a lot of analysis of that. Um, I do think, uh, though, as uh, John said at the start, some of these um, practical questions have not really um, had the airtime in, in recent years. There's, of course, been a big debate about, about Brexit, about the democratic and constitutional case for independence. But if it does ever come to it, um, I think these are potentially going to be the questions um, at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. And, and even in, in the long term, um, there's no reason why um, that, that gap potentially can't be closed by, by more intelligent policy. Um, will there not be short term uh, decisions, immediate decisions that an independent Scotland would have to make? Um, whether that's raising taxes or cutting public spending, or are you confident that that could be avoided? Well, I think the markets demonstrate just now that the priority for the foreseeable future is to continue investment. To Austerity is counterproductive. Pretty much all economists now agree that the approach taken through the post-financial crisis was counterproductive. You cut, you reduce demand in the economy, therefore you get less revenues, therefore your deficit continues to be a challenge. So that's not the approach that anyone would want to take. Having said that, if the Scottish Government has to pay a substantial premium for its debt compared to what the UK is now, that will be a challenge and it will be a growing up challenge for democracy in Scotland to deal with a credit rating and to have an orderly, good counterparty relationship with the people that are funding our financial services, not just the taxpayers, but the debt markets. OK, thanks. One other question for you. We've talked about Brexit as um, having helped the Scottish Government case for independence. Of course, the challenge that Brexit will pose um, is that if an independent Scotland wishes to um, 
re-enter the European Union or, or the EEA, so re rejoin the single market and the customs union. Does that not mean we will end up with a, a hard border with customs controls, other barriers on, on trade and so on between Scotland and, and, well, and England, the rest of the UK? Um, is that not going to be very difficult a sell for the, the, for the yes side to, to make to the Scottish people? Well, there certainly is a challenge, Akash, that will have to be answered honestly. But the good news is we'll know because within 37 days, we will know exactly what the border that's going to look like between to our east and to our west that's being imposed. It's four years plus since the Brexit referendum. We still don't know. But when that is established, that will be what the border between the EU and Britain looks like. So we'll have a living and breathing example of it. No doubt, no risk, just the reality of it. That won't happen overnight, of course, because after a vote, there'll be at least two years in transition before a de jure, a flag-waving day of independence, and then there will be an accession process which could take some time after that. So it won't be an overnight matter anyway, it will take years. But people will have to weigh up the trade-off between can rejoining the European Union stimulate your economy, re-establish your position in a world on, on values that you believe in, or do you have to put all your eggs in the basket of a state's economy that has been declining? Is a bit of friction going to be a price that's too high for the opportunities that you're weighing it up against? People will still be able to travel. Services and capital will not see a border. The issue really is the movement of goods. And we'll see what that looks like for, for lorries um, going north and south, sorry, going, going between Britain and Ireland and between Britain and France. And that will be the reality. But it'll be some time off anyway, because we won't be in the EU for some you know, period of time before we properly exceed. OK, it's, thanks. It's not, it's, not, it's not going to. None of these economic questions. I think they're, the position now is stronger more coherent and set out than it has ever been in, in 60 odd years of, of prosecuting the argument. Not me, I mean the SNP. OK, thank you. Um, John, I want to uh, come back to, to, to you. Um, so, I mean, you've, you've listened to Andrew's um, answers on those economic uh, and, and fiscal questions. Um, what, what's your take? Do you think that um, if it came to it, those those challenging uh, issues would potentially become the the soft underbelly of the of the case for independence, which, as you said at the outset, um, rested in, in in large part on on questions about democracy and and the impact of Brexit and so on. Okay, well, you've raised two issues with, with Andrew. One is the question of the. Uh, possibility that the border between Gretna and Berwick might be a single market border um, and the second is the economic argument. I think on the first one the honest truth is that that's one of those issues that frankly has not been debated and it's one of a number of issues of which the current fiscal situation, uh, the argument about Scotland being able to um, about our, uh, an independent banking sector where, they are, where the position has moved on from 2014. So in the case of the banks, for example, there is no Scottish banking sector left to be bailed out by an independent Scotland. Um, it, you know, as Andrew's already explained how the current fiscal circumstance potentially changes the argument about Scotland's fiscal deficit, but equally the border is another. Uh, the possibility that the border between Gretna and Berwick might be a real border uh, which was not an issue in 2014, is one of those things which, again, you know, way in which the argument is different and we don't know how the public react. So far as the economy is concerned, I mean, I think there is no doubt that one of the things that the S side failed to do before 2014 was to persuade a majority of people in Scotland that um, uh, the economic consequences of independence were beneficial and is almost undoubtedly a key reason why the S side didn't manage to win. Um, that said, if you look at the position now, I mean, I would say, I mean, probably three points. One is that whereas back before 2014, virtually every poll would tell you that more people thought that Scotland would be worse off than better off as an independent country. Now the polling is rather more variegated. Um, I can find you some that have um, more people think we would be better off, still one or two that say it'd be worse off. It depends on who asked the question. Um, but the second point I would make is that whatever people view, people's views are about the economic consequences of uh, uh, independence, 
they think that Brexit, they're much more likely to think that Brexit will be economically disadvantaged than they are independence. And that's one of the reasons, again, why, why Brexit's changed the argument on a whole range of criteria. Um, if you ask people about the consequences of Brexit and you ask people the consequences of independence, independence comes out as being not so bad stroke better than Brexit. Um, that said, the third point I would make is that I think it's still the case of the various arguments that you might want to make for independence. The one that for which support tends to be at its weakest is on the economic side. So ask people whether or whether or not Scotland would have more influence in the world, they say, yeah, independence. Would it have more pride in itself? They say independence. Uh, would it have more control over its own affairs? They say independence. Uh, uh, on the the economy, the question tends to, the answer tends to be rather more equivocal. Um, but you know, I guess at the end of the day, Andrew will probably say to you, "Well, look what happened to um, the Leave campaign. The Leave campaign never won the economic argument for um, leaving the European Union, but the other arguments were sufficient to generate a majority in favour. Um, and given that's the case, that's one of a number of reasons why I think that actually. Uh, Boris Johnson should understand the circumstances in Scotland rather better than he seems to. In many respects, the arguments are incredibly similar about the two debates. Um, uh, and therefore, given that similarity, you might think that the Prime Minister would understand them. But of course, one of the deep, deep ironies about these debates is that it is the very people who are most determined to get out of the European Union and to get out of the European Union single market, who are most opposed to Scotland being allowed to leave the European the UK if it wishes to do so, and are most insistent on uh, maintaining the integrity of the UK single market. But I guess you know, politics was never something where necessarily consistency was always regarded as a virtue. Thanks. Yeah, Shona, I know you wanted to come in on that point. And I was also going to put to you um, a question we've had from uh, Stephen McLaughlin, which is um, how realistic is the idea that an independent Scotland would be able to accede to the EU? Uh, would Spain potentially or, or maybe some other country uh, block it? OK, um, well, I think the Brexit point is certainly really, really important um, from a legal constitutional viewpoint. Um, it's brought about a really big change in the British constitution. There is a sense in which the UK is just not the same country after Brexit constitutionally, because the source of a lot of our laws and rules has changed. Uh, we are in transition, literally a very unsettled country. And there was already a dispute, I think, a disagreement um, between certain people in Scotland and certain people in England over the nature of the British Constitution. In Scotland, there has been, I think, a, a, a well-supported tendency to say this is a union that is supported by consent, by, by treaty. Scotland is, is not a colony, whereas in England there has been a great stress on parliamentary sovereignty, which, having done some research on that, um, cannot really be supported before the early, mid, late 18th century. Um, on the question of whether and how the, an independent Scotland could um, join the EU, one thing I would say is that the EEA, EFTA, that membership could be a halfway house. And what hasn't been noted is that um, the EEA isn't part of the custom union. So that would make any question of a border between Scotland and England easier. Um, there would still be the question of single market regulatory standards, but those are an issue anyway with the internal market bill because there is some disagreement as to whether under that bill Scotland would be forced to accept certain standards, you know, chlorinated chicken, whatever, that would be seen as unacceptable. So that's going to be an issue, whatever. As to how soon could Scotland join the EU? Well, it, the situation is different from 2014 whereby the UK was then a member of the EU. Um, both countries would now be out of it. So it would take longer. But from what I've seen, the estimates of whether it will be two, three, four, five years vary. Um, there is some sympathy from some EU institutions. 
And um, as to the Spanish, no, I think that if the legality of Scottish independence is beyond doubt, then Spain would not have a leg to stand on. The situation would not be comparable to Catalonia as it would not have been back in 2014 um, when there was agreement between the the two, um, the first minister and the prime minister as to the referendum in Edinburgh agreement. And the EU has, has itself um, underlined that point. Um, it would be a different situation if there were some sort of UDI that mm. might give weight to Spain. Um, but with a legal route to independence, I don't see that the Spanish would be able to make any argument because they in the constitution have a provision as to Spanish unity, which does not exist anywhere in the British constitution. There is no provision requiring Scotland and England um, that there could not be any sort of division. So the situation is, is, is different. Yeah, th thanks very much for that. Um, Jess, um, you have, um, for the Institute for Government, looked very closely at the, the border debate in, uh, in the Irish context, the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and, and so on. Um, do, do you think there are any lessons from how um, that issue has been uh, dealt with in the, in the Brexit context that could be applicable if we end up in this scenario that, that we've been talking about. Um, and the other question from uh, someone in the audience who, who's, who's remained anonymous that I was going to just put to you is, um, if a refer referendum were to take place, do you think the UK government, the same potentially might apply to the Scottish government, but yeah, should the UK government set out its own negotiating position in advance of, of the vote. Uh, I just wonder if you have thoughts on those two issues. Yeah, great. Um, I think on the first one, I think the overwhelming lesson from the negotiations over the Northern Ireland Protocol is just how important the EU thinks um, the integrity of its own single market is. Um, and I think it's quite clear that if Scotland were to become independent, um, there wouldn't be a huge amount of room for negotiation on what a kind of new border might involve, as um, Andrew admitted. I think one of the really interesting questions in relation to this is um, about the kind of adjustments that Scottish businesses might be making now in light of new frictions with their trade for, for the EU, um, and then what difficulties they might face having to readjust again should um, Scotland rejoin the EU and um, and there would be new in, new um, frictions introduced um, with trade with England and Wales. As Andrew says, that will be a long process, but I think that is something that might become more important um, in the debate going forward. Um, on the question about uh, the UK government setting out its negotiating position, again, I think this is one of the issues that is um, hugely underexplored. There's no kind of uh, set process to be followed in the event that Scotland did vote um, in favour of um, a yes vote in favour of independence. Um, you could say similar with the Brexit process. I think that's one of the key lessons that we've learned is that there needs to be more thought um, about kind of what you're asking for, what might be possible, how you sequence things, how, how this should all work. Um, and even in the EU case, we had Article 50 as a sort of kind of rough guide in which we knew there would be kind of two separate agreements. Um, I think in the Scottish case, um, that is an issue that should be resolved um, before we end up with, with um, holding the referendum. Um, some more thought is exactly the process that will be followed in the event of a yes vote. Um, whether or not the UK government should set out its negotiating position, um, I'm not sure I necessarily have um, a, clear, a clear view on. I think both sides, um, and certainly I think it's important for the Scottish government to present a clear um, kind of mandate about about what it thinks an independent Scotland should look like. Um, but uh, yeah, I think fundamentally the lesson here is, is that more thought needs to be given to the process. Thanks. OK, uh, final word maybe to you, John, um, and then we are going to be running up against time. Sure. I just want to pick up this question about what the UK government should do. I think the argument uh, that some people have, are having as to why we should enter in negotiations is A, it would delay the process, and B, that by um, coming up with a detailed specification, you would then persuade some people to vote against because they don't like the detailed specification. The argument against, however, is this. I can think of no better way of turning the idea of independence in, from a vision into a potential reality than to actually have a specific agreement 
specified in advance and agreed by both sides about what independence means. It seems to me that at the end of the day, one of the cards that the union side would want to play is the potential uncertainty associated with independence and that they would in many respects be weakening that hand um, if they were to uh, go down this path of negotiating with the Scottish Government first. Thank you. Well, I'm sure this conversation could go on for a lot longer. Um, we've had a lot of questions in that I apologise to those listening. We haven't managed to um, to, to, to address, um, but the Institute for Government will be holding more events, I very much expect, between now and next May in the future of devolution, Scotland and the Union. Um, and I would just like to thank all of you for joining and the panel for their contributions. So many thanks to you all.